Hey everybody, welcome back. If you are indeed listening to us again, this is episode two of The Goods, a film podcast brought to you by Brian, which is me, and Dan. Good afternoon, Brian. I'm very excited to be here and to kick off our second episode. Yes, so we've approached this series in such a way that we are going to take turns, sort of, uh, pitching movies to each other. That seemed like the fair American way to do things. And so here in episode two, this is my debut outing, taking the reins and selecting a film. Last week, Dan brought us 1977's Suspiria. This time out, we will be covering 2016's The Founder, a biopic telling the story of Ray Kroc, who is remembered widely as the quote-unquote founder of McDonald's, and the movie kind of complicates that legacy a bit. So I believe, Dan, this is the first time that you've watched this film, right? Correct. I had never, even to my knowledge, heard of the, the movie before you suggested it. It was on Netflix, so my wife and I watched it, and this was my first time seeing it. The streaming services certainly make it convenient to access many different films, especially in these strange times. I will say the first time I became aware of The Founder was a poster in uh, a kind of art house theater that I had a year-long pass to back in 2017. And I, I did not actually end up seeing the movie at that theater. But I saw the poster, it caught my eye, and then... Eventually, when it did become available on Netflix, I checked it out. This was my third time watching it, so I'm glad to finally be able to share it with somebody else because it has stuck with me. And I think a big part of that has been because I am really into fast food history. I think it's interesting how these big corporations, due to their advertising, they they put a lot of emphasis on what are called limited time offerings. LTOs if you're in in the biz or the fandom. And so there's a lot of turnover in what is offered at fast food restaurants. These LTOs are bits of history that while heavily documented, just because it's a huge company and, and there's a ton of documentation, they can be easily forgotten. And so fast fast food history, I mean, it's part of the nation's history at large, which we'll talk about a little more. But I just find it very interesting. Yeah, and I think a piece of that is that the limited time offerings are often, well, they can be a little bit out there. They can be a little bit unusual. And that doesn't surprise me, given your personality, that you find something compulsively enjoyable about them. I don't know if you've seen the ads for the Dugarita at uh, Red Lobster. That'll be coming out soon. I, I, I believe I did see an ad for that, actually. And you're exactly right. This is, in fact timely because we have bizarre LTOs popping out of the woodwork every time we turn around these days. And we may have to try a dugarita between now and whatever <laughs> next week brings. Turn into a fast food review podcast. You know, at this point, things are fluid. And yes, so this film tells the story of Ray Kroc 
complicates his legacy a little bit. And right out the gate, I want to say that it feels like it owes a lot to the social network in the sense of it's a movie that dramatizes the founding of a big company. It's centered on a person that I think if you asked someone on the street who founded such and such company, they would name protagonist character X. But then the story puts a lot of work into complicating the legacy and really addressing the theme of who deserves credit for an idea and the company that it germinates into. Yeah, definitely. When you told me about it, I think you actually called it the social network, but for McDonald's, or I forget the exact phrasing you used, but that definitely colored my perception of the film going into it is comparing and contrasting to the social network. And um, well, the social network is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So uh, it was very interesting to do some of that compare and contrast and things that I found that this did in an interesting way, maybe better. And maybe certain things that it didn't, wasn't quite as effective as the social network. One, one thing I was wondering, I don't know if you know off the top of your head, I, from what I was reading about this film, it seems like when it came out, there was a little bit of buzz that it could be, they got good reviews. It uh, got some of the performances were well-regarded. And in general, it had some of the trappings of a Oscar bait type film, you know, a prestige director, prestige actor, kind of a dark biopic. Um, but from what I could tell, it pretty, I didn't get any major ones that I could see. Um, it kind of got locked out of the Oscars and such. Right. Well, like I said, I first encountered it as a poster at an art house theater, which leads me to believe it probably had a smaller uh, indie budget and was advertised sort of through that circle. Uh, which means it didn't get the big Hollywood marketing budget or advertising push. So I, I don't know that I can say why that is, but I, I think maybe that was the idea from the beginning that it was going to be a smaller, smaller type thing. It says budget, budget seven to $25 million. So that seems like a very broad range. Wikipedia okay. is not exactly forthcoming with a number, but it's not <laughs> a huge budget. It says box office only 24 million. So it, it may not have had that wide of a release. I don't really know. Let's uh, kind of take a dive into the film. Yes, for sure. We've got it next up on our roadmap. You know, I like to sort of tell the story of the movie. It makes an enjoyable listening experience for people driving around alone in their cars, as I so often am, consuming podcasts. And consuming fast food. And consuming too. fast food. That's right. So there's synergy going on here whenever you're listening to this show. I always want to say this evening, but it may, may be a morning. You may, be, you may have just grabbed your McGriddle and you're driving around at uh, 8.15 a.m. I don't really know. But at the start of this story, Ray Kroc is driving around alone in his car because he is a 52-year-old traveling salesman. The wares he is most often trying to sell are something called a multi-mixer which is for making milkshakes. So he drives around from hamburger joint to hamburger joint, basically, in 1954, selling or rather trying to sell these uh, restaurant appliances to car hop 
joints that look straight out of Back to the Future. And from the get go, there's a lot of attention to the the period details. I guess this was in the 50s. I'm not sure exactly the timeline of it, but it had that whole sock hop drive in look absolutely nailed. There were the greasers. There was that aw shucks type dialogue. I, I definitely uh, appreciated that that level of commitment to really bringing us into the the time frame. Indeed. So yes, it does start out, I believe, in 1954. But then Ray Kroc learns that a restaurant out in San Bernardino, California, has just ordered six of these multi-mixers when he's been struggling to sell one. And he decides on the spur of the moment to drive across the country to visit this restaurant, which, shocker, is called McDonald's and is owned by two brothers bearing the name McDonald. When uh, Ray got this call, he's like from his secretary, Hey, there's this order placed for six mixers. He calls and he, he's astonished. Why would they possibly order six of these multi-mixers? At, at this point, I'm really confused about how successful Ray is supposed to be at this point. Because on the one hand, it's definitely clear that he's not really thriving. I mean, first of all, his pitch at the beginning is it's kind of contrived and it's... it's uh, never effective on the people that he's giving it to. I don't know if we, other than the the McDonald's brothers, I don't know if we see him sell a single thing throughout the, the movie, or at least a single mixer. I was, it's, I was getting the impression that he was kind of this loser guy, but then eventually, and I can't remember when, I think this is actually after he drives out to McDonald's, he gets back to his house and it's like a, it's a very nice house. Definitely like upper middle class. They have these uh, memberships to the country club. So I, I wasn't quite clear exactly what we were supposed to make of Ray Kroc's prior history before meeting the McDonald's brothers. That's a great point. Yeah, we do see him struggle to sell basically a single thing. It's a little montage of like rejection after rejection opens the film. And then sure enough, when we see his house, it's pretty idyllic. He's married to Laura Dern. He does have a, like a secretary who's filling him in on things that are being sold other places, seemingly not by him. So maybe he's like a, a higher level salesman. I don't have all that much firsthand business experience. So you are correct that it was hard to gauge. But I think it wants us to see him at the beginning as an underdog. Yeah, I agree. Who is, that, who is in search is of true. sort of in search of a star to chase. So he gets this call from the McDonald's brothers, and, and you're starting to tell us he, he drives all the way out there to see it. That's right. And so he meets these brothers. Uh, if we haven't said it yet, Ray Kroc is played by Michael Keaton. Definitely a very distinct and all-in performance by Keaton to play this guy. Yes, it's a pretty strong cast across the board, I felt. Uh, Keaton, though, definitely shines. So now he's traveled to California, where he meets the McDonald brothers, played by Ron Swanson himself, Nick Offerman, as Dick McDonald, and John Carroll Lynch as Mac McDonald. Now, John Carroll Lynch, not as recognizable, but I remember him from the movie Zodiac, where he played the Zodiac killer. Hard to see him him (laughs) as anything else, personally, but... I haven't seen Zodiac, so I didn't have that association. But for me, it was actually uh, Offerman. He will always be Ron Swanson. He was so iconic as Ron Swanson. It's hard for me to see him as anyone but Ron Swanson playing this guy or that guy. 
True. And at first I was confused why he was cast in that role. But then towards the second half of the film, he gets to be cantankerous and Ron Swanson sort of way. And it started to make sense to me. I agree. Definitely some good opportunities for some Ron Swanson style principled declarations. At this restaurant, Dick and Mac McDonald give Ray Kroc a tour of their kitchen, which they custom designed from the beginning with the goal of delivering food fast. So something that we saw when Ray was visiting restaurants at the start of the movie, these hamburger joints are full of kind of cartoonish greasers hitting on the car hop girls, uh, people just leaning on the jukebox like the fawns. Basically, any 50s cliche that you've seen in a diner are presented here in this movie as riffraff and undesirables. So the McDonald brothers have taken steps to eliminate this riffraff as much as possible. So the fast food is not their only innovation. They have created a system where people have to walk up to the front of the restaurant to get their food. And the food comes in paper wrappers. So it cuts out a wait staff. It cuts out dishes that you have to clean. There's no jukeboxes. There's no cigarette machines. So it really is you get the food fast and then you leave and go somewhere else to eat. And they keep the restaurant as clean as possible. The way that we learn about this is he goes to the to the McDonald's and then he, he gets dinner with the brothers and then they kind of jump back in time and tell their story. And we get maybe a 10 minute interlude where we see all of this unfolding. And I have to say it was maybe the most interesting part of the movie. It's very like uh, engaging scene and rewarding seeing that them figure out how to get it just right. That's right. I listed this under the what was good about this movie section of our notes, but we can certainly talk about it now. At this dinner with the McDonald brothers, you said there's a 10 minute montage sort of thing, exposition dump that tells us their whole origin story and how they tackled problems as they encountered them. And this really could have just been the movie. Like this could have been a 10 10-minute movie, 10-minute short film going around at festivals or something. That's kind of what it feels like. There's, I mean, there's even like Ken Burnsing over old photos and stuff paired with dramatizations of different steps along their journey. What I thought was especially interesting was it shows people being confused about the new model, like almost to the point of being angry. What do you mean I have to get out of my car and walk up to a window. Where are the waiters that come to the car? Why are there no plates? Right. And then you you also get when Ray orders it himself, trying to wrap his mind around how he just places the order and then almost instantly everything that he needs is just plopped in a bag and given to him. And where do I sit down and eat? I don't know. Wherever you would eat food. Up to you. I I thought that was pretty amusing. It was. So Ray is blown away by this model, and he sees huge untapped potential. The speedy system, as they call it, is revolutionary, and he wants to get in on it, basically. A recurring theme throughout this movie is that once Ray Kruk sees something that he likes, he's going to go after it and try to make it his own, insert himself into the narrative. 
one thing, one more thing that I will say about the montage before we move on is I really loved the music that plays. So it's more effective if you watch it. We'll probably put this link in the comments or something. But part of it is that Dick McDonald, played by Nick Offerman, has drawn out this scheme for his custom kitchen on a tennis court. I think he describes it as building towards a burger ballet redesigning it and redesigning it to get kitchen movement as efficient as possible. And he's up on uh, one of those big staircases that you roll around Home Depot to reach the high shelves. And he is conducting his McDonald's employees, future McDonald's employees, like uh, ballet, like he says. Or, or it reminded me of being at marching band camp, which I think you may be a memory that resonates with you as well, Dan. I hadn't made that connection, but that is exactly what it's like pointing out where people are messing up. Oh, your form's bad like this. Yeah, definitely. Anything, anyone who's ever been through like a group performing arts situation and you need to coordinate all these delicate movements, it, it definitely evokes that. And eventually they get it just right. So like I said, Ray sees big potential in this, says, please let me be a part of it. And what you really need to be doing to grow McDonald's is construct some franchises. And the brothers object to this notion because they say they've already tried at a few locations around California and the Southwest. And they weren't happy with that model because they were unable to enforce their strict quality control standards. These McDonald's two and three and four, they were getting dirty and they were offering non-standard menu items like corn on the cob. That was not what they wanted. They wanted to have strict control over how things were run and make every McDonald's the same, which is sort of another part of their revolutionary idea. They, someone even mentions this is like Henry Ford, but for restaurants. And it definitely is a major thing that the story tells is that it wasn't necessarily that their food was any different or better, but it was all in the way that they wrung out the maximum possible efficiency of, of creating it. It's kind of like a very fat, you don't think of food as sort of like this industrial factory line creation thing, but the way that they managed to do it is the secret sauce, if you will. Yes. They brought the assembly line into the kitchen and it, revolutionized that business model just as much as car assembly. Kroc eventually wins the brothers over to his vision of franchises by making basically his first successful traveling salesman pitch that we see in the film. Because as he's gone from town to town, he notices that every small town in America has certain common institutions. And these include things like a church, and a courthouse. I think those are the two specific ones that he points out. But I mean, you could say like, got to have a post office, got to have a fire department, got to have Floyd Barbershop in Mayberry, whatever. These common institutions that serve the community. And Croc is of the opinion that a McDonald's could become one of these essential institutions. Absolutely. Yeah. First, I want to apologize. You may or may not hear my, uh, toddler throwing a tantrum in the background so apologies to you and listeners if that carries through on the mic but i will say that this was a very resonant moment for me and a very alarming moment for me i wanted to know if this was going to go 
commented on or uncommented on throughout the rest of the film, how all of the institutions that he described are civic institutions. And he wants his business to be thrust in there. He wants his capitalistic vision of the way that they all share food by giving money to the McDonald's corporation to be something that's in every town. I would say that is not a uncontroversial idea. I was definitely interested to see how the film was going to grapple with that as it drove towards its uh, conclusion. And I would say that it, it did a little bit. I'll hold my thoughts, maybe not exactly in the way that I expected it to. Yes, it certainly addresses some of the strengths and weaknesses, the good and the bad of capitalism and how it works. But certainly there is room to climb for a driven individual, but what, what pitfalls lie along that journey? So Croc wins the brothers over with this pitch and is able to start establishing a few franchises sort of in the Midwest area of the country. Like Dan mentioned earlier, we get a little bit of his home life with his current wife, Laura Dern. They seem pretty well established in their community, kind of surprising for a guy who seems to be struggling to make money, for one, and two, is on the road all the time. Yes, they have a country club membership. And so he begins by approaching potential franchisees among the upper class of this community. Uh, but then they come to find that this may not be the best approach because pretty much right out the gate, they are encountering the problems that the McDonald brothers foretold. The restaurants that Ray visits are filthy and they're not upholding McDonald's quality as exemplified by a non-standard menu featuring lettuce on the hamburgers. How dare they? It's pretty funny how it's shown just his revulsion that this McDonald's hamburger now has a, a loose piece of lettuce on top. And the solution that they reach to this is Croc starts approaching middle-class investors, people that he kind of identifies his same sense of drive in. And these middle-class people, often with families, have more incentive to toe the line, basically, and maintain the high standards of quality to be their boots on the ground more frequently at the restaurant rather than some aloof owner. That gets things more running streamlined, and it really starts to take off. It's interesting. This section, for me, this I thought that this part of the film dragged quite a bit because we had already heard this exact story in the the montage where they talked about no we don't franchise because this is what happens and then we get like a 15 minute segment where that is exactly what happened what they already told us had happened you know i guess it was interesting to see it play out in real time but to me it was an odd script decision to tell us and then show us after you've already told us you know i can definitely see that it does retread ground certainly so croc works on trying to build the restaurant the numbers of franchises are climbing. He's going all over the place. As he is going about this, he starts to chafe because as part of his deal to get to start making franchises other places, the McDonald brothers made him sign a really restrictive contract. It requires him to seek their approval for any changes that he wants to make to things like the building layout and especially the menu and the changes that he wants to make are often in 
the name of Making a Quick Buck. And this is where Dick McDonald, Ron Swanson, gets to start making some of his characteristic outbursts as he keeps trying to keep Ray on the straight and narrow, basically. Due to the, the steadfastness of the McDonald brothers, Ray's proposed changes are invariably rejected. Yeah, they had about 10 scenes of Ray Kroc calling the McDonald's brothers on the phone and explaining something that he wanted to do before getting the Dick McDonald, Ron Swanson treatment of no, and our contract says that you can't do that. We definitely, I thought it was interesting and notable how so many of these seem to happen over the phone and kind of had a similar cadence to them. Again, retreading some common ground. If, if you're not one for a bit of repetition, perhaps this movie is, is not for you. That'll be a tally on our, on our ultimate check marks, but certainly some funny lines as Nick Offerman barks at Michael Keaton. He's a good barker. So Kruk, as part of this contract, receives like one and a half percent of the money from the franchises. And because he's on the road so much, putting himself out there so much to make new locations, he's finding himself with very little money left over to make a living. And as part of getting the loans that he needed for this project, he put up his house as collateral because he's sort of been involved in a lot of schemes over the years as a salesman you know he kind of had to put everything that he had up as collateral in order to get this loan and so as he faces the risk of losing his house he is looking for a, a new approach some way that he can get more money out of this deal despite his tight contract with the brothers and this is where ryan from the office bj novak shows up he hits Croc with a bold new strategy for how he can increase his financial stake in the company and gain some leverage over the brothers. Yeah, BJ Novak is another actor who, whenever I see him, it's not, oh, that's BJ Novak playing a character. It's, oh, it's Ryan from The Office playing the character. It's the same thing as Ron Swanson. Here's a fun fact. I've actually met BJ Novak. Oh, where I was that? Went, I went to a stand-up show of his when I was in college, so this would have been Sometime around 2008, uh, afterwards, there was a meet and greet, and I got to have a, conver a short conversation with him and got my picture taken with him, except when they took the picture, I was in the middle of talking to him, and so my mouth is open really awkwardly, and so maybe I'll send you this picture. I have an awkward photo with uh, Ryan from The Office. That's a keepsake. We can make that our podcast image on the app. I think I might have to veto that idea. <laughs> I will say I also recognize B.J. Novak from Inglorious Bastards as kind of the Brad Pitt's right-hand guy. But e even so, there, I was thinking of The Office. And so the idea that Ryan from The Office presents is that Ray could increase his financial stake by creating a new company, with the idea being that this company is going to be focused on buying up plots of commercial land and then leasing out these land plots to potential franchisees. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. I, I feel like I would have to read a, a law book or a finance book, but this setup allows Ray to have some more control over the franchisees himself for one, it seems he can get a bigger financial cut from their endeavors. Yeah, I think the details there are maybe not as important as the story thrust of it, which is that he, Ray, is once again inserting himself into it, making it about him 
more more land for him, more control, more money for him. And that's kind of the, the important thing there, I think. Certainly, that is the effect that it has. Ray has a bigger piece of the pie for himself now, and he will henceforward be able to throw himself around a little more. In his travels about this point, Ray is in talks with a franchisee of his who has a restaurant already. Like he has a fancy like Michelin star Ratatouille style restaurant. This restaurant manager reaches out to Ray saying, hey, can I get in on this McDonald's thing? Can I like run a couple of McDonald's in this area? Because that seems like the new cutting edge in, in the restaurateur industry. But while he is talking with this guy, it's like, you know, the the angelic harp and a beam of light from above descends in the background onto the piano at this fancy restaurant where the restaurateur's wife, it turns out, is playing the piano. This beautiful blonde woman played by Linda Cardellini in a wig. Ray is immediately smitten. And of course, at this point, we know that Ray does not honor the first come first serve principle. Yeah, at this point if you're if you're watching it at home there's plenty of red flags on uh let's say the future of his relationship with Ethel Laura Dern. Yes, because if you have seen the plaques in many a McDonald's that say Ray Kroc founder you may have also seen a plaque or two that say courtesy of the Ray and Joan Kroc fund. It's like, wait a minute, it's not the Ray and Ethel Kroc fund. So he immediately starts to schmooze with this piano-playing beautiful woman, 26 years his junior. Soon they're texting each other, the 50s <laughs> equivalent. They're in each other's DMs, and something is building here, to which the husband is just unaware, I guess. We get like an aw shucks grin from him. Seems like they, they only got halfway there on the uh, how exactly are we supposed to interpret the relationship here. I mean, obviously it's going somewhere, but you're right. The husband of Joan, Linda Cardellini's character, just kind of stands there. And then they have a couple of exchanges and they have one very important one that we're going to mention in a moment. And then we kind of don't see her for a while. And it, it's, it's not exactly clear how the, the arc of this relationship played out, I guess, behind the scenes. Right. So that was one point that I would have liked to have seen fleshed out a little more. But kind of the takeaway is it seems that Joan, like Ray, is an ambitious climber. So she has some business acumen of her own. You might call it opportunism of her own. But she, in one of their rendezvous, because Ray is constantly traveling, now more than ever, he's just jumping all over the country. But in one of his encounters with Joan, she pitches a cost-cutting method of using non-refrigerated milkshake mix at McDonald's restaurants. And this is basically to cut refrigeration costs. Don't need to run a freezer if you have this powder that you can put into water and have that make a milkshake. And this is where we get my favorite outburst from Nick Offerman. He hears about this no-milk milkshake plan, and he says, Real milk, Ray, now and forever. That's not a bad Offerman impression. And <laughs> I just really like that. I, I would buy that as a bumper sticker. Uh, so, of course, he, he, the, the brothers have a problem with this. They reject no-milk milkshakes. At this point, Ray is basically 
done being held back. He wants to be unfettered. He's going to cut loose. And so he sends out uh, every McDonald's popping up all across the country, these packets of the milkshake mix. And it's around this point that he also asks his wife, Ethel Laura Dern, for a divorce. Everything that he senses is holding him back. Basically, he's cutting cutting away from himself at this point. I don't know if that seemed entirely warranted. Laura Dern is another one that it's hard to tell how we're supposed to feel about because Ray is like, oh, you're holding me back. And it doesn't really seem that way. I agree. Her part is not huge, but I actually think she had maybe the best performance of the film. Her character really does not have much written to her, but she manages to like convey so much just with her her, her sheer acting skill that you kind of get a sense for the character and you like her, but you don't really get why Ray would have to leave her. They don't really do a good job of defining that. And uh, I was just, I thought Dern did a really awesome job with the limited role that she was given. But it all kind of contributes to this heel turn that we've got for Ray going on now. He's kind of going full Breaking Bad. He decides he needs to get out from under this McDonald's contract. So he says, look, you know, my financial stake in the company is so huge at this point. Basically, I want to buy you out. There is a a moment, a beat where Mac, the brother played by John Carroll Lynch, has like a stress, nervous breakdown slash mini heart attack or something. And he's laid up at the hospital due to the just the stress of of dealing with Ray and all his (laughs) all his fake milkshakes. But Ray finally approaches the brothers and says, look, I'm going to buy you out. So what do you need to get out of this deal? to make you go away, basically. He brings in a literal blank check for them to fill out. And they say, we want a million dollars each after taxes. We want to retain ownership of the original San Bernardino location of McDonald's. And we want going forward to earn 1% of everything the company makes going forward. A short while later, we see a meeting with the lawyers and they've got all the paperwork drawn up. And Ray says, okay, you can keep the restaurant, you each get your million dollars, but this 1% thing, the royalties, we just can't do that on paper. It has to be a handshake deal. I mean, all along this journey, if you have seen the social network, your alarm bells are going off. If you happen to follow our blog and have seen Dan's article on the adventures of Cavalier and Clay, if you know the like Siegel and Schuster Superman story, you know, all these all these stories end with people being undercut. You never want to take a handshake deal. Definitely you got to be careful of those. At least if you're in a movie where you're competing with a capitalistic parasite, beware of the handshake deal. That's right. And it, so, I mean, this most recent time I watched this with my mom and she's like yelling at the screen, don't take it, don't take it. But <laughs> I feel like the brothers kind of know how this is going to go at this point. Uh, I mean, they have seen the way that Ray operates. I think when they take this handshake deal, they are half acknowledging that it's not going to go anywhere and they're not going to get this money. They just kind of want to get Ray off their back. That's my read of it. I, I think that's fair. I actually did a little bit of research. This handshake deal is definitely disputed. In fact, it seems like the consensus is more that 
this handshake deal never happened. Apparently, the source of it is a cousin who claims to have been on the phone as the deal was negotiated, although there's no evidence of that. And the McDonald's brothers themselves never publicly complained about it. They always said that they were happy and they think they made the right deal that they made. It makes for good uh, storytelling. Yes, it's a big dramatic moment, but maybe a departure from historical accuracy. But he gets one final knife in the McDonald brothers' back because while they do keep their original restaurant, they are now no longer able to do business under the McDonald's name, even though it's their name. And so they have to take down the McDonald's sign on the front of their restaurant, and eventually it's reduced to just a big M, which seems like it could be contentious anyway, because that is the logo. But anyway, this big M restaurant is also forced to close after a couple years because Croc, as kind of a final vindictive screw you, opens a McDonald's location right across the street, and it drives them out of business. So the movie ends shortly after that. It jumps ahead in time, and we see uh, Ray Kroc, who's now really rich, and he's married to Joan, who pops up again. Some, yeah, she had, like I mentioned, maybe. she had disappeared for a bit. Like, we kind of saw things escalating. He gets a divorce. We don't see her again until this one of these last shots of the movie where she kind of, like, walks up behind him. I can't remember if she was actually wearing fur, but I, like, imagined her reveling in this this new wealth. Yeah, she's very much the trophy wife, it seems. At this point, it's like 1970, and Ray is preparing for a Republican political event that's going to honor the new governor of California, one Ronald Reagan. And we see him kind of pacing around, rehearsing his speech for the event, and it's a rehash of a self-help record that he was listening to earlier in the movie. And the gist of this self-help speech is that the most valuable thing to get ahead in life is persistence. More than talent, more than anything else, if you want to reach success, you have to be persistent. I liked that, that uh, symmetry. It also mirrors the opening shot of the film, which is when Ray is giving one of his spiels to sell his old mixer machine. And it's shot in the same way with the same kind of distortion in the background. I, I always like it when uh, film, you, you can draw those parallels to the very start and the very end of a film. That's right. It feels poetic. I think it's also worth noting that this message that he's going to go deliver to a crowd is also something that he just pilfered and is now going to pass off as his own. That's true. I hadn't thought about that, but it it's like the fourth time he's seen something he likes and tries to take it for himself. And that is the plot of 2016's The Founder. Now, is this the time where we talk about what was good? Sure. Let, let's look at some of the good things in The Founder, of which there were plenty, I would say. So, like I said, the montage, the McDonald's brothers telling their story, I feel that's really the strongest section of the film and could have kind of been the whole movie in its own right. Yeah, it's it's weird. Uh, it was so good. It was almost distracting how little of a piece it was of the actual movie. It comes up and is gone in 10 minutes. It's like, wait, I want to hear that story. That, that story is more interesting than like, I don't know, Ray arguing with people he met at the country club. That's fair. We mentioned the cast, and I really think that the cast is pretty universally good. Uh, there weren't really any weak links for me other than my own personal hangups with 
specific actors being associated with specific roles. Um, I mentioned I thought uh, Laura Dern really stood out to me. I'm I am a Laura Dern fanboy. I think she's amazing. I think her show Enlightened was like a, a mini masterpiece. So I'm always going to be uh, in favor of Laura Dern appearances, but I did think she was excellent here. And of course, the the centerpiece is Michael Keaton. Just a couple of years out of his Oscar, I don't know if he won it for Birdman. Yeah, so when was point, that? When was Birdman? I think like 2015, 2014? Yeah, it was 13 or 14. Okay. Um, and so at this point, he's like a prestige actor. It's like this movie's built around him. And I think he... Uh, he really leaned into it. He's got like this, uh, this lizard-like way. He licks his lips. It's like he's coming for you. He's going to get it. And it's, it like makes him seem a little more alien and intense. The way that he talks evokes the classic seedy salesman vibe. Not too over the top, but just enough that you're always a little bit on edge when he's talking. Is he, is he spinning you a, a tall tale? In fact, I would say he almost goes a little too far in that direction of him being too slimy. It was a well-done acting performance that was uh, delightful to sit through, I would say. He definitely has an interesting arc over the course of the movie. We get to see him get pretty nasty. Yes, it's complex how exactly we're supposed to perceive him. We'll talk about that more in our next section. But the, the last thing I wanted to point out as something that struck me as really good and well done is we get a lot of the parallels, cases where Ray sees something that he wants and he goes after it, basically, is is played out again and again across different spheres. You know, he'll he'll take what he wants as his own, whether it's a restaurant or a beautiful woman or a self-help platitude. If he wants it, he's going to go after it. You can tell the, the writers really tried to think about that specifically is like, how do we draw some of these parallels? And I, I think that writing in some of the small scenes and in some of those small parallels, like we also talked about the beginning and the end mirroring each other, worked pretty well. But I I think some of the maybe higher level structural things were a little bit questionable. And, I, and I'll definitely get to that in a minute. Well, now, Before did you we have do anything that, else to point out that struck you as good about this film? Yeah, I wanted to point out one other thing, which is uh, we talked a little bit. I already went off a little bit on the, the 50s period details. And I'm a sucker for any 1950s uh, kind of schmaltzy uh, nostalgia. It works for me usually. And I thought it was pretty well done here. The, like, the colors were kind of bright and Norman Rockwell-y. And then it gets darker as it goes deeper into his megalomania as the film goes along. I thought the visuals and the kind of the attention to period details where it was pretty well done, in my opinion. That's a good point. You know, in the social network, we're back in 2004, which is rather different from 1954. So this really is a period piece. Absolutely. Yeah. So do we want to talk about some rough patches now? It sounds like you've got some <laughs> some things you're wanting to touch on. I do. And I'll just start blunt. I think the script is a fiasco. I think it was like three edits away from being actually a good script. I think the story, the overarching story is a compelling one and like one that really needed to be told. And I think uh, they really captured it in moments, but we've complained about five different things. And I had a few other things that I was going to complain about where it's like, what would they, what were they thinking when they wrote this? 
we mentioned they kind of repeat things in a way that is not very interesting. Like it's not a thematic repetition that I could see. Mm-hmm. They um, they box in maybe the most interesting mini story into like a little 10 minute montage when that was just as interesting as anything else going on. There's a few things that they kind of just forgot about. We talked about Joan. She kind of disappeared and then reappeared at the end. And we didn't really actually get to see that story, despite it being hinted at kind of the way. I mean, I guess it's implied in the way that they got divorced. And then we see her at the end. But like other than a couple conversations, it it ends up kind of just being a side thing. There's this recurring bit. And this is maybe more of a direction thing than a script thing. But you always see him pouring himself a drink. He gets a drink right when he gets home. Every time he gets home, he always has his flask with him, even when he's driving. You see him at the movie theater. He's sipping alcohol. And then I kept waiting for a thing to happen. Like, oh, he gets in a drunk driving accident. Or, oh, he gets drunk and gets angry at the McDonald's brothers or something like that, where you kind of have that align with his increasing self-indulgence and self-gratification as the movie goes but you just it never if it's there i didn't see it. oh it's yeah it's of, like uh, a Chekhov's gun that stays on the wall exactly yeah. i didn't even think about that it's just kind of an affectation that he has and I, I think it's to make him seem a little sleazy even from the beginning um but yeah that's really it there is no payoff to that affectation yeah, and I already mentioned this too, but a lot of the interesting conflict happens over the phone, so you miss the physical interaction. I mean, I know like the physical truth of it is that some of these characters were in the Midwest and some of them were in California. Kind of miss a missed opportunity for like really good act off. Just felt like a missed opportunity for me. And of course, I already mentioned I liked Laura Dern so much. I wish we had more of her. That was another thing I disliked. <laughs> so, what about you? What are some things that you disliked? Let's see. So you excoriated the script pretty thoroughly. Uh, Not all of those things stuck out to me, but I can certainly see them better now. Uh, I do have some issues with Joan kind of disappearing for a while. I would have liked to have seen how she ended up leaving her husband, although it could have been as simple as the abrupt way that Croc just at dinner says to his wife, I want a divorce. Yeah, that was kind of awkward. It's like, whoa, you just... It wasn't even really a blow-up. It was just like a statement. Yep. And maybe it was exactly the same way for her, in which case maybe we didn't need to see it. I suppose, yeah. Uh, But (laughs) maybe you're the same in that I have old-fashioned notions about the sanctity of marriage, and I would like the falling apart of one to be a big thing in some way. So it, it's just kind of an abrupt thing that happens. Part of that was I was wondering how we should feel about Joan's character. I mean, she is much younger than Ray, and it seems like the way that he wins her over is he, like, flashes some magazine about him in front of her to be like, oh, your husband owns three restaurants, but I own, you know, 3,300 restaurants. Right. Whatever the case is, I'm the, I'm the big boss, and I have a ton of money. And is that what wins her over? You know, is she a, is she just a gold digger or is she like a kindred business savvy spirit? Or are those two things, in fact, one and the same? For me, it was kind of the latter. My take on her was a little more wholesome overall. I didn't think she was just a gold digger. Part of that is because Linda Cardellini, who plays Lindsay Weir in the seminal Freaks and Geeks, 
She's just such a personable and charming and warm presence. One thing that we've mentioned is the social network as a parallel. But for me, there was also some of the Wolf of Wall Street. I don't know if you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street. Where I have seen that once, yeah. It, where there's this kind of gradual rise in business and he becomes more and more unlikable as he gets deeper into it. And if you contrast it to that, they had Margot Robbie play the equivalent of Joan in this movie. And the affair is much more explicit in that film. Mm-hmm. Explicit as indirect and explicit as an R-rated. She does a much more clear job showing that this woman is a gold digger. Whereas... It's really hard with Joan because she's played by such a nice and friendly actress and because we don't really get that much writing for her. I don't even know how many total lines she has throughout the movie that it's kind of hard to get a sense of her. Similarly, I thought that the way Keaton is gradually made into a villain is maybe not so gradual. It's a little uneven at points, just how nasty he gets. I don't know. I, they I set him up at the start of the story to be this underdog, at least that's how I saw it. Likeable in a sense, you know, he's struggling, he's trying to get something working for him. And I mean, what he eventually hits on in expanding the restaurant model is at least in the name of, you know, family fair. He, he makes use of a lot of American values to sell this expansion as a good thing. But then at the end of the movie, he, he, there's a scene where he is confronting the brothers again, and I think it is by the phone. He says that at this point, if his competitors were drowning, he would stick a hose in their mouth. <laughs> and I thought it's that a powerful was, line. Yeah. yeah, it's a good line. It is super dark, obviously, especially in the context of what McDonald's is to American society. That's right. Uh, But the weirdest thing, though, is in researching for this podcast, I came across a song that recounts the Ray Kroc story and uses that exact line, the stick a hose in their mouth if they're drowning, which leads me to believe that that must be a direct quote from Ray Kroc's autobiography. (laughs) In which case, yeah, I, I guess go ahead and use that. Shows you what he really was, I guess. Yeah. So what did you, what was your take on that? How did you feel about how how we should see Ray as presented in this film? Is he a villain? He ultimately ends up the villain. I mean, to me, they were trying to make it the Wolf of Wall Street story about this hustler who is the underdog, and then he becomes the very thing that had been oppressing him in the first place. It's kind of the traditional rags to riches to villain story that you see in gangster movies, you see in other things. I agree, it was really choppy, and it didn't really give us a good sense of the emotional growth that he was going through, like why he kind of stumbled into this descent. What exactly was the catalyst for it? You know, it, it, it just kind of happens and then it's done. There's not really a thing that seems to trigger it or to be the, the moment that it goes over the edge. I mean, maybe it's him meeting Joan, I don't know. Maybe it's the milkshake thing, but it's just not clear and I thought, I agree, the arc was kind of choppy and kind of sloppy. He goes from the aw shucks, can't sell a mixer schmuck to the imperial overlord of, of McDonald's. That's right. That's what happens. One other observation that I had, and I guess this does show maybe a weakness of the script, is in these phone conversations where it keeps cutting back to the brothers, 
and oh how do we feel about where ray's taking the company now the brother mac keeps insisting that growing the restaurant is dick's dream nick offerman's dream despite it really seeming to be the other way around the way i read it was that dick seems content with the way things are and really seems to be the one who wants the most control over quality he only wants his empire to reach as far as he can see it seems and it keeps being mac who is like oh just let him go ahead and, and keep going because he's got to build this thing and yeah, so well, really I... it seems to be him being the one pushing things along it, it really does not seem to be nick offerman's dream I think other than Nick Offerman being Ron Swanson cantankerous, I didn't really get a strong sense of a differentiation of the characters. And in fact, wasn't it that, yeah, you're right, that um, Mac was the one who wanted to be in the movie business. He was the more idealistic one. So that to me was definitely ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So I, wanna, I wanted to make a pitch to you on something. So what have you got? So I should confess a couple of things first. So one is that I have a complicated relationship with biopics. I tend to not like them very much because I think they are bound to dual masters of telling a true historical story, but also telling a compelling narrative. You kind of have to compromise one to the other. I usually prefer biopics that err more on the side of a good narrative to a historically accurate narrative. My favorite biopics, these are not controversial at all, but would probably be The Social Network, if you count that. And Amadeus is up there for me. The ones that are famous for having taken some liberties in the name of telling an interesting story. Ooh, we so, should do an Amadeus episode. That would be fun. Yeah. I love Amadeus. So I started thinking about, if it were me writing the script, if I was, or if I was handed the script that was given to me, and I had to play script doctor, what changes would I make to address some of the concerns that I had? So I'm going to make my script doctor pitch of how I would have told the story now that I've kind of seen one version of it. Let's hear it. Okay. So we're going to start 10 years earlier, maybe uh, let's make it 15 or 20 years earlier, right around the end of the great depression. So Ray Kroc is kind of floating around. He's struggling at this point. He's looking for work. And that did happen. He, before he became a successful salesman, he floated around from job to job. And he connects with Ethel. So we're going to actually see their meeting. And she's also kind of struggling. And they have maybe a little connection. And he convinces her that he's going to figure out a way to build her, to build them a great life through his sheer chutzpah. He's, he's going to be this guy who works hard and gets it for her and for them. And my idea here is that we're setting up a couple of things. One is that we're kind of understanding their relationship a little bit more. And then also we're like aligning his persistence and his willing to scrap with capitalism and sales and moving product as his way of getting ahead in life. Yes. And he sings a million dreams from the greatest showman as he's (laughs) winning her over. And then at this point, so here's, we're going to actually see rather than having the 10 minute cutaway, we're going to actually see the McDonald's brothers. They're in California. They, they're too uh, hit hard by the depression their dreams of making it big in the movie business have failed, but they discover that they're the, the only ones who are kind of making a living still because they have this little hot dog stand that's continuing to sell. So we have the dreamer, and that's Mac, and then we have the business savvy guy, and that's Dick. And Dick says, hey, you know, maybe we can figure out how to turn this into something real, something long term for us. 
and he he convinces Mac that there you can have some art and joy and grace and creating these food for people, sharing this real food with them. We can still be big dreamers together, but we'll do it in this other way. So at this point, we're getting a little bit of a better sense of the the McDonald's brothers, and they they're in it because they dream of providing this authentic food, this real life sustaining necessity that can be enjoyed. So rather than uh, kind of jumping right in in the mid-50s, we go back further and we, we kind of in rapid succession, let's say it's a half hour, we get all the way, we, we see what we already saw with the McDonald's doing it. And then we see Ray, he, he kind of works his way up. And then the thing that I was complaining about where we don't really know if he's a good salesman or a bad salesman, maybe we get a little bit of a montage or a scene here and there of him working his way up, being more successful. Oh, he starts his own little business. Oh, he's kind of making it there. All right, so now we're almost, let's say that that goes, we get that montage. Now we're almost to the point where the movie actually started. And Ethel says, well, Ray, you've done what you said you did. You built a life for us, but you're never around to enjoy it. When is it going to be enough? When can we just relax and enjoy the things that we built together? And Ray sees this and he's like, okay, you got a point. Here's what I'm going to do. I have this box of shake machines and once I sell these, let's take some time together. We can enjoy it. We can go to the country club together. We can enjoy this life that we wanted to build together. And that's when it happens that the McDonald's brothers have just finished their restaurant. Again, I'm playing with time here and the, the truthfulness of it. But I'm trying to think, how could we make these stories a little more parallel, a little more interesting? And so he goes and he gets the sale. Oh, it would have been his last machines. He brings them, drives them out to California to the McDonald's brother. And he's like, oh, what is this thing? And then he he gets big dollar signs in his eyes. He becomes enamored despite it being his one last day on the job. He's, he's all in on, on this McDonald's. And then we get some of the similar stuff that we've had where he gets home and he, we have that scene of him telling Ethel that he just wants to be a part of it. And she gets this concerned look on, on her face. Well, I thought we were just going to, you know, enjoy, go out to dinner in the country club. Why are you trying to build something new and fresh? But now this kind of makes a little bit more sense. Like we have kind of in the actual film, some throwaway things about schemes and stuff, but it doesn't really connect. I think if you built up a little more into their relationship, it, it, would, it would work better. And then at this point, we get a lot of what we've already seen in the movie, but I think you can cut out whole chunks of it. I, I didn't really get much from the, oh, you don't want the big country club guy. You want the working man guy. To me, that didn't really play much into Ray's arc other than kind of, I guess, affirming him. But I think if you get more of the, the background, that to me would have been more interesting. Oh, and here's another thing that I think needs to be important. So there's actually some dispute. I was reading about it, about the origin of the golden arches and who actually invented it. So it seems to be the story is that one of the McDonald's brothers, I think Dick actually conceived the idea of arches being like part of their branding but it was actually Croc who had the vision to like make it the shape of the restaurant. It's like the iconic symbol. And I think if you just make it so that he came up with the arches as the parallel to the cross, as the parallel to the American flag, this symbol by which the community could be driven, make it, make it just more clear that it's his vision of how to like use his capitalistic powers to get his claws into America. Then that could have made it even clearer. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I put a lot of thought into this, and thank you with, for bearing with me here. Oh, I'm glad that the movie bore fruit for you in this way. <laughs> okay, so then the next thing I would do is there's a little bit too much back and forth on, oh, I want to make this change. Well, no, you can't do it. Oh, well, we're having this trouble. Oh, well, that's too bad. I want to merge some of it together. I want to make 
the BJ Novak character, I think it's Harry Sonneborn. Mm-hmm. I want him to be merged with the restaurant owner. So the one that is married to Joan. So basically he has this one meeting with them and it's, it's both of those things together. It's he's lamenting the low profits, the banker slash restaurant owner. I don't know what he is in this version of the script that's in my head. He pitches the idea of owning the real estate as the mechanism, the same way that BJ Novak's character did. But Ray is kind of reluctant because, you know, he is hungry for more, but he's still the McDonald's are his partner. He doesn't want to make a move on them. And this is when, again, we meet Joan and Joan sits in on the conversation. They have that spark. We get the same piano playing bit where they have this chemistry and pile it all in to this one kind of turning point. And she, let's say shortly after she calls him up, as she had heard all the complaints about it. Oh, this refrigeration is so expensive. We barely move milkshakes. Why are we even bothering with it? I'm not making a dime. My house is on the line. And then if you do this, now the house being on the line becomes more of a thing because that was kind of the kickoff of the movie is uh, that's, that was the impetus with him and, and Laura Dern's character. And then she has an idea and this is where we get the milkshake, the powdered milkshake. It's got the same kind of sexual tension in the scene. And it's good because it's a parallel to the thing, you know, the milkshake machine was what he was doing to sell when he came into McDonald's. So it's like, it's kind of more clearly mirroring that. Then we kind of get, at this point, we get a more explicit start of their affair. And this is the, here we have to me, I think what this movie was missing was like a clear break bad moment. And if, if Joan comes in, boom, they, ha- they start this affair, boom. She has this idea to make, make a dirty profit to sacrifice the sanctity. Then everything just turns into overdrive. And the end of the movie, uh, much of it can still be the same. You know, we still have them fighting back on the powdered milkshake. And now the divorce can be a little bit more of a blow up with Ethel throwing back at Ray. You were on the right path until this McDonald's came and you became obsessed with it. It was more, more, more. I think we need a little more of a blow up there. You were the chosen one. (laughs) Now, see, the theme here is that his, his desire for more, more, more is really what does him in, is really what turns things sour. And it's not just this idea that he always takes something, that he gets an idea and he takes it for himself. But we see this arc a little more clearly. There's kind of, to me, a poetry that was kind of unexplored in the idea of this food, which is a sustaining force, is also this corporation that won't pay its workers minimum wage and like feeds these intentionally addictive and unhealthy foods that make you want to keep coming back. And I think instead of just ending with the, uh, a mirrored shot of the, the sales pitch, you could maybe have something where it's like uh, something that more clearly like focuses on the perverse double side of how McDonald's took this more elemental essential thing of sharing food, sharing joy, and then turns it into this monetization, this thing that, that became you know, a, a corporate way to get more and more and more in, in the pockets of the, of the Ray Crocs of the world. And in case you can't tell, I'm very cynical with uh, the way things are in, in world right now with the corporations, with the stock market up as, as the rest of us are suffering during this 2020 time. And maybe that is why I did a whole mental rewrite of this film. But I think that is, you, you, you had some opportunities to really drive home that theme a no, little that's bit more. Great. I mean, that brings things surprisingly back to pretty much the ending point that I had planned, which was talk a little bit about the insidiousness of McDonald's as a corporation and and whether that was sufficiently addressed. The closest we really get to it is like 
seeing Croc gradually trying to make the food less of the McDonald's brothers vision, but it's not really played up as a, you're making the food bad. It's played up as well. You signed a contract and we own McDonald's and we tell you what to do. So I think that that theme was not really explored the way that I personally would have liked to have seen it explored a little bit more. What did you think? I think they could have gone into it more as well. It would have been a good parallel to the growing insidiousness of Ray himself. Uh, but now with all that you've brought to the table in your expanded universe here, uh, I almost think there's enough material they could have done like a six episode for Netflix miniseries. Yeah, I think that could have worked because something good about it is just the story itself is really interesting and gives you a really interesting lens onto different themes about America in, in many different ways. So I will let you now then say, is it good? Right. Our beloved, is it good scale where we each are going to rate it on this eight point scale. The lowest being very not good, up to not good, not not good, good-ish, good, and then very good, exceptionally good, and tour-day good at the top of the pyramid. So I struggled with this. To me, there's lots of missed opportunities, but also lots of good stuff. I feel like I'm being a little harsh, but my just gut reaction is that this movie is not not good. It's almost good-ish but there's enough things where I look at it and I'm like, that didn't really make sense. As I said, I feel like the script is a little bit of a fiasco here, despite the good production and the good acting that the negative feelings of that brought me down towards not, not good, despite liking finding the subject material quite interesting and the acting and cast quite compelling. And where did you fall on this scale? Well, after your autopsy there, I suppose my, my own views may have taken a slight hit, Uh, Coming into this, I would have said, very good. This appeals in a weird way to my own interests. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, Like I said, I'm into fast food history. Uh, I think mostly I just really, really dug the hell out of that montage. I think if if we're going, like, that montage is exceptionally good. Uh, But the film itself, you're right. The, The script is not perfect. There is some muddy arcs, some retreading of ground a couple times. Uh, so I think where I fall right now is a, is good, which is five, five out of eight. Um, but I can certainly see your arguments. I would like to see your version of the story. And I will watch this movie again. I've watched it three <laughs> times. I definitely will watch it again. But when I do, I will think about the bookends that you've added on. and what could have been. I was wondering if you might want to take a couple minutes and touch on how this compared for you to the social network. I kind of already did a little bit of a bit on what I think of what I look for in biopics. And Mm -hmm. I, this is a very subjective thing. So if you find it compelling that movies are more truthful and like represent a more objective truth, then kudos to you. For me, I care more about a a well-told story. I think the social network does a much better job of being a well-told story than this. I think in some ways they're actually similar in that they are both corporations that do good in this world for people individually, but also do lots of toxic things. And I feel like the, the social network did a little bit more of showing up front just how toxic Facebook is and would become 
Whereas I thought this movie muddied that a little bit, as we already discussed. I mentioned at the beginning that the fact that you compared it to Social Network going in colored my perception of the film. And I would say it was ultimately for the negative for this I see. film. You thought it was going to be better better than it was? Well, it's just that I like The Social Network so much. And I kept thinking about things that The Social Network did amazingly, that this one did either just okay or maybe not as good. I will say, for whatever reason, I did not really like The Social Network. And I, that probably is a big bomb to drop so close to our clothes and with no defense. But something about this one, maybe it's just the different color scheme. I like yellow and red better than blue and white. I mean, it could be as simple as that. I like the period aesthetic, the stuff they did with the 50s. There's definitely, yeah, warmth and appeal in that. And I can buy that the story of making burgers is just like intrinsically more compelling than what does it mean to make a website? I think I think that is it. Like uh, Justin Timberlake saying, you got a million, but why not a billion? And it's like these numbers are hard for me to process. I don't know. It's just a little more removed from my reality. On the flip side, it's just so pleasing to see Nick Offerman tell you how he invented a quick burger build system. And it's just very pleasing. I, I agree that there is, there's definite pleasure there. And I, I don't begrudge you for uh, just finding something about this more appealing. You know, is it good is about celebrating the things we like, despite my cynicism this episode, I want this podcast to be a celebration of the, uh, the things that we think are good in film, the things that we like. So certainly no grudge there for, for just liking it more, you know? Sometimes you just like something. True, true. And I, I thank you for joining me on this journey and taking such a critical look at today's film. So can you give us a little taste, a little sample spoon taste of what comes next? Let me make a suggestion. And if you don't like it, we can figure it out. But my suggestion was the Richard Linklater film, Everybody Wants Some. Have you seen that? I have not. What's the, what's the premise? It is the spiritual successor to Dazed and Confused, the high school movie. And it has the same basic structure or lack thereof of people just hanging out. But instead of the last day of a high school year, it's the first day or really the first weekend of a college year. And instead of 1976, it takes place in 1980, focused around a baseball team rather than a more diverse group of uh, students. So the reason I picked, I, I am going to suggest this movie is because it's fall, it's a new school year. And that to me just seems an appropriate pick. And I didn't want to get too, too far into the Halloween stuff without celebrating some of the September rituals. Good. I'm glad there's somebody to rein me in from going full Halloween yet. I, I look forward to it. And hopefully any listeners out there do as well. Are we ready to wrap, wrap it here? That sounds good to me. We had a, a nice long discussion here. So thank you for, for suggesting a movie that gave me quite a bit to think about. I aim to do just that. So thank you all for listening. Hopefully you had some food for thought to chew on. And join us next time on The Goods. Real Milk Ray, now and forever. Real Milk Ray. Real Milk Ray.